Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with my buddy Andrew Callahan from the Herald in just a little bit. We'll get into the move the Patriots made, the biggest move they've made so far in free agency, which is swapping out Jacoby Myers for Juju Smith-Schuster. We'll get Callahan's take whether or not he thinks it's an upgrade. And also, are they going to actually trade for a top-tier receiver? Because from my perspective, Juju Smith-Schuster is a number two, just like Jacoby Myers is a number two. Will they actually get that number one guy? So we'll get into... All the offseason stuff with Callahan in just a couple of minutes here. But I wanted to start with the Celtics because, as we know, this team has been in a major funk. And their best player right now, Jason Tatum, is searching for it. And we'll get into some of his issues in a little bit. But I want to start on a positive note, and that's with Jalen Brown. Because with Tatum struggling so much, you needed Jalen Brown essentially to go supernova in Minnesota just to beat a decent Timberwolves team, not a good team, not a bad team, just a decent Minnesota team. You needed Jalen to go nuts. And he did. He went for 35 points. He went for 10 rebounds and he got to the free throw line eight times for the second straight time in terms of he did this against Houston as well. And what this illustrates to me is sort of the theme with Jalen Brown is he is in attack mode right now. He is playing very, very aggressively. And man, he had it all going on in that game against Minnesota. This is what I love about Jalen. He's not like a Floyd Mayweather type fighter, right? Where he wants to feel you out, see what you're doing and sort of play defense, then go offensive on you. He's more like Mike Tyson. He's just coming out and Jalen wants to hit you with haymakers early in this game. 
And you look at it, 7.4 first quarter points per game, 14th in the NBA. Last year, he was at 7.4 as well. That was 10th. So early and often, there's no waiting around with Jalen Brown. And I feel like we're seeing even more of that lately. He scores the first five points for the Celtics in Minnesota Wednesday, including one, just a powerful drive right to the basket, basket, which is vintage Jalen Brown. He had a rebound, then he found Jason Tatum on a hit-ahead pass to get Tatum to the free throw line. So early in this game, Jalen Brown was involved in the first seven points that the Celtics scored. He hit a three, the drive I alluded to, and throwing the ball out to Jason Tatum doesn't get credit for the assist, but of course, Jason Tatum gets to the free throw line. And what we saw in that game as well is Jalen is an absolute monster in transition. Right now, how about this? Jalen Brown is up to fourth in the NBA in transition points per game at 7.0. And that's ahead of guys that have the ball in their hands more like super lightning quick point guards like John Morant and De'Aaron Fox. And we saw it last night, right? Semi-transition. He just explodes to his left, gets to the cup, hits a layup to make it 44 to 40. And another thing we've seen is he's just so dangerous with his drive game. And when Kyle Anderson was on him, which by the way, slight digression, Kyle Anderson would be great for the Celtics team. Like the guy knows how to play, super smart, great passer, can play on the wing line. He would be great on the Celtics team. Like that's what they need, another playmaker on the wing line. But anyway, getting back to my original point is Kyle Anderson cannot cover Jalen Brown. So he had a drive where he just exploded past Anderson to get to a dunk to make it 49-45. Then he broke down Anderson for another layup to make it 61-53. So it felt like anytime Kyle Anderson was matched up on him, he just attacked him. Later on, he had the smaller... Alexander Walker on him, and he just crossed him up. He got right to the free throw line. Later on, we saw a hard drive on the break to make it 87 to 80. We actually saw him get a switch too with a bigger defender, Nas Reed. He just back dribbled and attacked. It was awesome. It was just like he knows exactly what he's going to do. Big guy on me. Okay, let me take a few steps back. I'm going to get a running start. I'm going right past Nas Reed. And then Anthony Edwards tries to come over for the help. He's too late. Jalen just dunks it down on him. So let's get to this aggression with Jalen. He's always been someone that uses his physicality as a weapon. But now it's gone next level. And this is evidence of how he should be playing going forward. And I have a comparison that I want to get to in just a little bit here. But let's first look at the difference. So now, post-All-Star break, smaller sample size. It's only 10 games for Jalen because he missed one for personal reasons against the Knicks. But what we've seen is Jalen has made a clear decision that he wants to get downhill more since they've come back from the All-Star break. And maybe it's the mask. I don't know. I think he should keep playing with the mask, by the way. Maybe the mask is a symbol of like, okay, I'm going to beat the shit out of you because that's what Jalen's been doing to defenders since he came back. But anyway, so post-All-Star break, 28.1 points per game. That's up from 26.5 points per game pre-All-Star break. He's shooting 50.2% from the field. His three-point percentage has actually climbed to 383 That was at 33.1% pre-All-Star break, okay? And how about this? The attempts are down. That's part of the reason he's shooting better from three. He's at 6.1 three-point attempts per game post-All-Star break. He was at 7.6 pre-All-Star break. So he's taking better threes. He's taking fewer attempts and sometimes less is more when it comes to three-pointers with Jalen in particular. They're in rhythm. And there were way too many pre-All-Star break where Jalen would just come down and he'd bomb up a pull-up three. He's not really doing that right now. He'll take a step back like we saw last night when he loses a defender. But from my naked eye, I've not witnessed those rush threes where he just does the defender a favor because that's what they want Jalen to do. Hey, you're just going to come down and take a three. We're good with that. They are fearful of Jalen attacking the basket, but it lets them sort of get off the hook when he just takes those threes because he's a below average three-point shooter, just 33.8% of the season. The league average is 36%. 
So what's Jalen doing better to get to these numbers? So back to the drives I alluded to. Jalen is up to 13 drives per game post-All-Star break, and he's averaging 10.1 points per game on those drives. He's shooting 58.8%. Pre-All-Star break, he was at 11.1 drives per game. So he's up about two drives per game, and he was at 8.6 points per game on those drives. So the aggression is paying off. He's getting, what, an extra point and a half per game just because he's driving the basketball more. But it also loosens up the defense, and it actually makes his step-back game and his pull-up game more of a weapon because now the defenders are fearing the drive even more than they originally did because Jalen so often at the beginning of these games is just getting downhill. So what guys are going to do is they're going to back up a little bit, and that makes easier attempts for Jalen Brown as it pertains to getting to his pull-ups, getting to threes. It makes it easier to take those shots than it did prior to the All-Star break. All right, so what do those drives lead to? What they lead to is more shot attempts at the basket and more free throws. You ready for this? Jalen is now taking 8.9 shots per game in the restricted area since the break. You know, that little circle around the basket. Almost nine attempts per game in the restricted area. That is ridiculous, right? Now, the percentage is pretty good, too, since he's taking all these attempts in the restricted area. But we're talking about more than three attempts per game that he's increased. He was at 5.8 pre-All-Star break. Now he's at 8.9 attempts per game in the restricted area. I love this. So what does it mean? It means he's averaging 11.6 points per game in the restricted area at the rim. 11.6 points per game at the rim. The number pre-All-Star break was 8.2. He's at 11.6. So he's averaging almost three and a half more points per game at the basket than he was pre-All-Star break. And it's not a coincidence that now he's north of 28 points per game. He is right now relentless getting to the basket. And just to put that 8.9 attempts in the restricted area in the proper context, here are the players in the NBA on the season that are taking more than nine shots per game in the restricted area. Zion and Giannis. That's the list. That's the entire list. The guy literally nicknamed the freak and a two-time MVP in Giannis. And another guy that is just a complete ball of muscle. We've never really seen a player like Zion before. That's the neighborhood that Jalen Brown currently resides in, in terms of getting to the basket. So this is just, from my perspective, a major, major development. Jalen has used his physicality as a weapon, but he's never used it to this degree. This amount of drives to the basket, this amount of attempts in the restricted area. This is fucking bully ball, and I'm getting to the rim, and you're not stopping me. That's the way that Jalen Brown is playing right now. You can feel it, right? You can feel it just watching on TV. So I hope this is a sign of things to come. The three-point attempts are down, and the attempts in the restricted area for Jalen are way, way up. This is the best version of Jalen Brown. And just when you're watching, doesn't it look ruthless? It's just really, really powerful, and it looks like it's exhausting to try to defend that type of player, right? And if you take the... Like, if you look at him on the season, if you actually subtract, like, if you took his attempts in terms of his above-the-break threes, and you took 2.3 of those away, and you just put those in the restricted area, he would actually average more points per game. So sometimes, less threes per game are actually better, and in the case of Jalen, take some of those above-the-break threes, put them in the restricted area, and what we've seen post-All-Star break, the numbers, the math actually adds up, and just secondarily, aren't those more impactful, the baskets that he's getting at the rim? It makes the defense feel you. So this stretch for Jalen, what it reminds me of, or I should say who it reminds me of is Dwayne Wade. Now, not pre-LeBron Wade, where that guy was consistently living all NBA first team, all NBA second team, leading the league in scoring one year. Not that Dwayne Wade, but when LeBron got there, he took a little bit of a step back 
to let LeBron have the ball more naturally, right? Like Dwayne Wade was the guy at Miami and you bring in another high usage guy who at that particular point in time was better than Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade had to let LeBron do his thing too, right? So Wade was the guy that was like the knockout punch for that team. He made you feel him, right? And Wade always played bigger than 6'4". Jalen, by the way, as we know, is 6'7". But Wade had that 6'10 wingspan, one of the best shot-blocking defenders as a guard that we've ever seen. Maybe the best shot-blocking guard we've ever seen, and him and Michael Jordan. But you go back to 2010-2011, the first year with LeBron. Wade, 7.5 attempts per game in the restricted era. So at the rim, third in the NBA. Like I said, Jalen during the stretch, 8.9. He was at 5.8 pre-All-Star break. So if he can live somewhere above seven, that's where I think Jalen should be residing. He should play the way that Dwayne Wade play, where it's constantly you are attacking the defender and you're attacking the basket. That's where Jalen is at his best. He's never going to be a great three-point shooter, but you can create better threes if you continue to drive the basketball the way that Jalen is. So I think the biggest thing with Dwayne Wade is he made the defense feel him every possession that he had the ball. And that's where I believe Jalen should model his game after. And we've seen it lately, right? And when the other guy, when he doesn't have it going, like LeBron didn't have it going, Wade would take over. Jalen has a nice sense of sort of reading that thing. But I think Jalen, just make the most out of your possessions. And we've seen it post-All-Star break. Just get downhill, get to the basket, because it's also an intimidation factor and it's a fatigue factor. It's very difficult to defend Jalen the way he's playing right now, because you're constantly getting hit on every possession. Okay, so now we have to get to Jason Tatum because he's in a real funk. O of 8 from deep in that game against the Wolves. O of 8. Last two games now, he's 12 of 38 from the field, 31.6%. He's 2 of 18 from deep, that's 11.1%. He did at least get to the free throw line 16 times on Wednesday, which is a large number considering he was not shooting the ball well whatsoever. So, And he had that furious dunk on Rudy Gobert after Gobert was kind of going back and forth with Derek White, which then a bunch of their guys got ejected after the game or when the game was pretty much over. But the Rudy Gobert thing, he like almost made contact with Derek White. White was upset. The Celtics bench and the Celtics players did a great job of like getting the tee on Rudy. I don't think, quite frankly, he deserved it. But I love that Tatum came down and he just dunked on Rudy. Now, I was super scared for a minute there. I'm sure a lot of you were too when he went down. Like, I was pumped when he's dunking on Rudy Gobert. Then he goes down. Oh my, oh my. Okay, please make sure he's okay. Luckily, he was okay. But anyway, so he had some highlights during this game, but we can all agree the past two games, he's been bad. He just looks out of it. He airballed a step back three when he had Naz Reed on him, which was actually, I would advocate that was actually a decent three, created a lot of space, but he just airballed it. He missed a little bunny at the rim. He had that late foul when it's 101.97, They're trying to run one of their pet plays where Tatum comes up and he screens for Marcus and then he gets the smaller defender on him and he just set an illegal screen. Then he had an ISO brick, right, where he's isolated with Rudy Gobert. Looks like he wants to go to work on him. It's 101 to 99. It just took him too long to get into that step back three and he ends up bricking it. And now he's shooting 29.7% from deep post all-star break and 43% from the field. The good news is, I will say this about Tatum, he is still getting to the free throw line 7.2 times per game. But here's my big question about Tatum, not just for right now, but for going forward. And this is, I love Tatum as a player. He's going to be first team all NBA. He's a franchise level player. But this is just my one question with Jason Tatum going forward is what does he do when he's in a funk? What does he do when he needs to get a basket? Like, where are his areas of the court where he thrives? For example, he's not a great isolation player. He wasn't last year. He hasn't been this year. So, so far this year, 30 players have had at least 150 possessions in isolation. 
Jason Tatum ranks 21st in points per possession at 0.92, so he's not a great isolation scorer. How about as a pick-and-roll ball handler? He's in the 50th percentile, 0.89 points per possession, 37.6%. So he's not a great ISO player. He's not a great scorer out of pick-and-roll stuff. I just wonder what does Tatum go to when he needs a bucket? Like, for example, Luka is a great isolation player. He averages 1.13 points per possession in ISO. That's in the 85th percentile. Tatum, as we mentioned, is in the 51st percentile as an ISO player. So... And does he have like that shot that he can constantly get to? For example, Durant, he's going to get to his mid-ranger where he shoots 57.5%. Even Jalen Brown can get to his mid-ranger, right? 48.7%. Devin Booker, another guy, mid-range king, 48%. Tatum's under 40%. He's at 39% from mid-range territory. A guy like Steph Curry, he's going to find a way to get to his pull-up three game, or he's going to run off a screen and get a three. He's shooting 44% from three this season. Jason Tatum is shooting 34.7% from three this year after shooting 35.3% last year, and the league average is 36%, so he's been a below-average three-point shooter for the past two seasons. Giannis, he's just going to run through people, get to the basket, and Bede can back you in. So I just feel like for Tatum to become a more efficient scorer and actually become an efficient scorer, he has to have a place where he can just constantly get buckets, and he really doesn't have that place right now. Even Pierce, remember Pierce in his heyday, he had the elbow jumper. He needed a bucket, he'd go to the elbow, and Pierce could overpower you in the lane as well. But throughout history, Kobe Bryant developed that fadeaway game that he got off Michael Jordan late in his career, right? So just Tatum right now, he doesn't have that certain thing that he can go to when he needs a basket, right? Hopefully he can get to the free throw line more. Obviously that would help, but he doesn't have that place on the floor where he really thrives. Now he's been good in post-ups. He's in the 97th percentile actually as a post-up guy. Only 92 possessions, so that's 5% of his possessions. It's not like you can get a healthy dose of this. I do think this is something that they could do more often just to help Tatum and get him going because he's at 1.29 points per possession in ISO, which is elite 35 of 60 on the season. So, and we've seen him, when you can get that screen, get that mismatch, he can overpower smaller defenders. So that's something he could certainly get back to. Getting him the ball at the nail more often, that's something that you'd like to see more often in terms of dialing it up to get Tatum more looks from that area because he can dominate there because you can't really help off the shooters. He can get to the basket. He can get a pull-up over, not a pull-up, but he can get a standstill jumper over you as well. But I just believe when you look at Jason Tatum, and he's a superstar-level player. He went to the finals last year. He's been an all-NBA guy. I understand all that. But I think what separates him from the top, top, top players is he needs more help when he gets in these situations, right? Like even getting him the ball at the nail that has to be something where the coach says, hey, let's run this to get Jason the ball at the nail. Or if it's a post-up, hey, let's screen away from the ball. Tatum's going to come to this block, give him the ball there, right? Like those things need to be coached up. I just feel like Tatum, for him to take another leap forward, which he's already a great player. He's already a superstar level player. But for him to take another leap, he needs to find that area where he knows, okay, if I go here, I can just get a bucket. All right. One other thing I wanted to get to is with Marcus Smart, did not shoot the ball well again in that game Wednesday night, four of 12 and 0 of 5 from deep. Although I did like his comments prior to the game, he said he's been mediocre defensively this year, which I agree on that. But I did think he looked more like the old Marcus Smart than he has in some time against Minnesota, right? He had that steal on McDaniels early, goes the other way, and he scores. He had a nice drive and kick to Al, where he was passing much better than he has in previous games. He just ripped away a ball from Reed, where he read what Reed was doing. He came off his defender, picked him. He had an and one late to make it 97-93 on Anderson when the possession was completely dead. Now, he did miss the free throw, but that was a nice basket by Smart, a huge basket because the possession was dead. 
And then on the next possession, he had a layup to make it 99-95 when that possession was dead. So I felt like he did make some big shots late in this game. And he finished with five assists in the game, but it really easily could have been 11. Like the potential assists were 11. How many wide open shots did they miss? Where Smart found Al for two open threes that he missed. Jalen actually missed a layup on a backdoor cut, and then Jalen got his own rebound and put it back in, but that should have been an assist for Marcus, so he should have at least had eight assists in this game. I did notice more of an effort from Smart to run the offense, get everyone else involved. So if you look at him since he's come back from the injury, 3.9 assists per game and just 8.1 potential assists per game, that's just basically the NBA tracks at what could be an assist, right? You hit a wide-open shooter, that should be an assist. Jalen Brown cuts to the basket, has a dunk, that should be an assist, but anyway... Pre-injury, he was at 7.2 assists per game compared to the 3.9, and the potential assists were at 11.7 compared to 8.1, and last night, it was 11. That looked more like Marcus, the point guard, than the guy that we've seen recently. Now, I still have my concerns with Marcus Smart. One game doesn't change that for me against the Timberwolves team that's not great. He did just shoot. He did have a bad shooting game once again, but I did feel like he looked more like the Marcus Smart we're used to, and he actually was better defensively. 3 of 10 shooting against him as the primary defender, so I felt that he did well there, and one of them was a step-back 3 from Edwards, which is just going to be difficult for anyone to defend. I really like that Edwards guy. Like Anthony Edwards is going to be a really good player in this league. I like the fact that he works out with Jalen. I would pay to watch those guys work out against each other because I'm sure that's intense. But overall, I thought that Smart was better, and this is the version of Marcus Smart this team is going to need if they want to make a deep run. Now, I still think it's very odd that Derek White, again, wasn't closing the game last night, considering he was game high plus 11, and he was sixth in terms of minutes played last night for the Celtics. But the one thing I will say is that is one of the better smart games we've seen in some time. I don't worry about Derek White. I feel like Derek White is going to be consistent all season long. I just like would advocate for him to be in the closing lineup more. All right. Then Grant Williams, this is a huge development. He played in the first quarter. I'm not kidding. Grant Williams played in the first quarter against Minnesota, something we ordinarily don't see. And he actually closed the game as well. He had an offensive rebound late, and then he stole the tip. I mean, that's the game right there. Unbelievable play. That's why Rudy and those guys and Kyle Anderson got ejected, because Grant legitimately stole the tip. Hey, go for it, man. What's the worst that can happen? Minnesota gets the ball. So nice plays by Grant late. The offensive rebound with, what, like eight seconds left. Then he steals the tip. I will say overall, it was a mixed bag for Grant. He fell asleep early in this game, let Anderson cut behind him which led to a Rudy Gobert and one because then Grant fouled Rudy as he went up for a dunk and he still converted on the dunk attempt. But then he did have a nice spin move on Kyle Anderson to score. But then again, late, he has a charge where he got caught in the middle. He drives a closeout and he just goes into a defender. And then when it's 101 to 97 late in this game, he just lost Rudy Gobert and Rudy Gobert got to the free throw line. So two instances in this game where he just lost the guy that he was covering. And then the big play late in the game, as we alluded to. So it was a mixed bag. I mean, he had the huge play late. He had the nice spin move. I don't think he was particularly great in this game. He was one of five from the field, 0 of three from deep. But I do think it was a good sign that we actually saw him play early and we saw him play late because, like I say with Marcus, this team is going to need Grant Williams if they want to host or if they want to win a championship. And we saw Missoula last night a lot go to the two big lineups, which meant we're going to see more of Grant because he does play a lot with other bigs, right? Okay, the other thing I would say is Jalen, those eight free throws are huge because Tatum took 16 against Minnesota, as we alluded to. And the Celtics in that game against Minnesota, 30 free throw attempts compared to the T-Wolves who took 22. So an eight free throw advantage for the Seas. The Celtics are at 21.9 attempts per game at the free throw line that's 25th in the league. Jalen's at 5.5. 
He should be closer to that seven territory. And I think we're actually going to see that now that he's driving to the basket more. But the other thing with the Celtics is post All-Star break, they were following like crazy. 27th in opponents free throw attempts per game at 26.1. So they were losing that battle. So this season in general, if you look at the margin, 21.9 free throw attempts per game, they take 21.6 they give up. So they're barely winning that battle. And if you can win this more often and be less dependent on the three, that's huge for the Celtics. And it all comes back to not following. If you want to win the free throw margin by a wider gap than you've been winning all season, which is just 21.9 to 21.6, two things need to happen. Get back to the team you were pre-All-Star break in terms of not following. They did a good job of that against Minnesota. And secondarily, Jalen Brown, who is very capable of doing this, needs to get to the free throw line more. All right, a lot more to get into. We'll get into the latest move that the Patriots made where they signed Juju Smith-Schuster to replace Jacoby Myers. Was it the right move? We'll ask Andrew Callahan of the Herald next. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, he covers the Patriots for the Boston Herald and the host of the Pats Interference Pod as well. It is Andrew Callahan. Callahan, thanks for coming back, man. What's going on? Not busy at all, huh? Not busy at all. We don't have free agency going on the entire week. I don't have UConn's biggest game, and I don't know how long tomorrow. Bachelor party this weekend, trying to stay on top of normal Patriots news. BC Johnson's coming in town uh, from the Vikings, coming off of two ACL tears. Big, big week here. Yeah, you're not kidding. And I mean, you got to feel good. At least your team, UConn's in the tournament. My team, Syracuse, they're having a coaching change right now. So, I mean, hopefully... That, that means that this team's going to turn it around. But it's been a tough couple of years to be a Syracuse fan. But it does feel like UConn with Hurley there. I mean, you guys are back to being a good program again. Yeah, first of all, no uh, sympathy for Syracuse here, my friend. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to take up too many people's times. Like I do this uh, with Mike Manansky, fellow UConn alum sometimes. And they got a really good team. The analytics love them. I don't see it as much, but I'm thinking I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about Sweet 16 or bust. I also love the villain matchup with Rick Pitino in the first round facing him in Iowa or Iona before he goes to uh, St. John's. But I'm thinking uh, if you know Rick, he'll be very, very quick when it counts. So, you know, yeah. I, I think you can move on. I hope they win because I cannot stand Rick Pitino. And this is coming from a Syracuse guy. And by the way, like, I don't hate UConn as much as I hate Georgetown and I hate Villanova because when I was in school, it felt like those are the two teams that they were really competing with in terms of like, they could never beat Louisville. That's part of the reason I don't like Rick Pitino. And he always wore that white suit where it's like, hey, everybody look at me. And that was just obnoxious. And of course, I mean, the guy traded away Chauncey Billups like four <laughs> weeks into his NBA career. So I have... No sympathy, or I don't like Rick Pitino at all. So I do hope UConn wins that opening matchup on Friday. All right, Callan, let's get to the Patriots. Of course, the reason 
we have you here. It's very interesting to me that they choose Juju Smith-Schuster over Jacoby Myers, where essentially it's the same money in terms of the $33 million. It's almost like we rarely see in the NBA nowadays, like challenge trades. Like remember back in the day, it'd be like, okay, Jerry Stackhouse for Rip Hamilton. Now it's like, hey, we're trading you a really good player for draft picks, right? Even if it's a rotation guy, it's never like a player for player trade unless it's a really young player for an old player. And in this case, both these guys are coming off their 27-year-old seasons. Not that it's a trade, but you're basically swapping out Jacoby Myers for Juju Smith-Schuster. So some interesting stuff on this. One of the things I notice if going through PFF stuff, if you look at yak perception, Juju's really good there. 5.5 yak perception, which was 6. Jacoby, 3.6, which was 23rd. The yards per target favor Juju, 9.2, which was 15th compared to Jacoby, 8.4. Yards per reception favor Jacoby 12.0 to 11.6 for Juju, 24th and 29th respectively. The rating when targeted, man, Jacoby this year all the way up to second among receivers, 119.6. Juju was 103.4. The big one to me too, if you look at going back to the Yak with next gen's information, the Yak over expectation, Juju 1.8, which was sixth, which was right behind AJ Brown. And then Jacoby minus 0.6, which was 111th yards per game, really similar like basically less than a yard more per game than Juju Smith-Schuster. So my guess here is that they think that Juju Smith has more of an upside than Jacoby Myers does, especially with some of the numbers I referenced in terms of after the catch. Jacoby, though, has been in the organization for a number of years. So what do you make of the swap? Do you like it or do you dislike it? I understand the swap. I think I come from the standpoint of somebody who's been on the record my podcast, maybe even yours, writing TV saying there needs to be a shakeup, right? And the names you go to, Hopkins, Judy, Higgins, all this different stuff, those ships have sailed. Like we were watching them fade in, into the twilight in the distance. Now you have Juju Smith-Schuster. My question would be, why not both? Like they have the money, they have the cap space, the Patriots rank in the bottom five of cash spending this year, scheduled to be dead last next year. This isn't for lack of green or space, why not both? The Patriots' interest in Jacoby Myers seems to have been almost non-existent from what I understand and can tell based on the contract, like you mentioned, which, you know, Jacoby's contract really locks him in for one year in Vegas. Juju's guarantees are lower, but they're spread out over the first two years, which really should guarantee him a roster spot here in New England. So what is it about that? The change, I think, is his ability, like you mentioned, to create yards after the catch. Like he's a little bit more dynamic. He can break tackles. Jacoby is a more well-rounded receiver. He's more precise. He's, you know, a known commodity to them, but the range of outcomes for Juju is just wider. And you can see that in the second season when the kid has 1400 yards, Jacoby's still in college learning the position after playing quarterback. And so they're betting on that upside. I just have my doubts about whether that materializes because you go through all those numbers like you just did. Let me ask you, how big is the gap between Andy Reid is an offensive line in Matt Patricia because I think the environment, <laughs> the environment that Juju is coming from and the one that he's going into as a number one option who's going to draw Xavier Howard, Jalen Ramsey, Tredavious White, Sauce Gardner each twice during the season is going to be much, much different, much harder to thrive like he had last year in Kansas City. Well, and the issue I have, and it's a, it's a fair point, I understand like they're idea that Juju will have more upside just because of the stuff. And he breaks tackles and stuff. So I understand their whole idea of, hey, he's an upgrade over Jacoby Myers. But the point that disappoints me is where you say, why can't you have both, right? Because 
I looked at it and I see, okay, are they in on Hopkins? Are they in on Jerry Judy? And you mentioned last time you would like Judy. I mean, some of the numbers on Judy, he would be a great fit with Mac. Really good yak guy, has been great against man coverage and all that. But you think this is it. Like Juju Smith-Schuster is going to enter the season as the number one receiver for the Patriots. You don't think that they'll get, I know they were interested and we hear about that type of stuff, but you don't think they'll go after the big name guy. Because from my perspective, like we saw in Kansas City last year, Juju Smith-Schuster is much better being a number two option than a number one with Travis Kelsey. Even if you go back to his days with Pittsburgh, he was really good when Antonio Brown was there and he was the number two guy and all the attention was on Antonio Brown. When Antonio Brown left, and eventually, of course, he ended up on the Patriots, Juju was not the same guy. So from my perspective, I've always said that I didn't think Jacoby Myers was a true number one receiver. I think he's a number two, but I would say the same thing about Juju Smith-Schuster. He's a number two receiver. So the problem here is you still have not solved your issue. You've just swapped out number twos. Exactly. And that's really well put because you go statistically, Juju's best season, 17 and 18 with Antonio Brown, four-time All-Pro, Travis Kelsey, the same thing last year. And I think it's just a stylistic thing. Again, they're both big slots. They're both 26, 27, six foot one, six foot two dudes. Juju's a little bit bigger. We've talked about the yard depth, the catch and breaking tackles. The other part about it is, you know, the best version that the Patriots ever get a Trent Brown is a dude who's in a contract here, who's got a really good position coach. Okay. And that environment again brings the best out of him. I think the outcomes here for Juju are probably going to be on the lower end because this is a guy who just got paid. Okay. He's drawing all that extra attention. He's working in a system where sometimes he's not going to get targets. And you knew how Jacoby Myers was going to react to that. And he was fine. He didn't care. This is a guy who aspires to be you know, a, a professional plan B, a security blanket, as he said, like I can make big plays. I'd rather just be the dude on third down who takes the hit, makes the catch and comes back up. So I think, again, my question was about where are you getting another receiver? The number ones, in my opinion, are all gone. You know, it's not happening via trade. Juju was the best receiver in free agency. You look at the draft. I would think that Jackson Smith from Ohio State is really in play at 14. But after mm-hmm. him, it's like Jordan Addison. That's kind of it. And I don't think the Patriots mind as much as the rest of us do, but from someone who has been arguing and clamoring and calling for change and a shakeup and more dynamicism inside this offense, like I just don't know where they're going to find a receiver. So that makes me think that again, he's going to be the number one, even if you slide in, you know, someone like a Braxton Berrios here in free agency, where I think they're going to sign one other guy, but just not, not a, not a game breaker, not a, not an offense changer. Oh, it's just so irritating because how many years are we going to talk about this now? Like, even if we go back to the Brady era, most of the time he had a number one option. He had Rob Gronkowski. Prior to that, it was Randy Moss. He always had that number one guy when it became Brady's team. I'm not referencing the early, the first dynasty, but I don't understand how Belichick can look around, in his, even in his own division, and look around and see Stephon Diggs and Tyreek Hill and Garrett Wilson, who's developing into a number one. Now, maybe the hope is, like you said, at 14, they find that receiver, but man, that's a lot of hope to find that number one guy. It just feels like the Patriots, from my perspective, Callahan, they're not on the same wavelength as a lot of other teams in the NFL where they realize now, hey, it has turned into, you need this number one option. You need this number one receiver. And it feels like the Patriots, even after what they experienced last year, they feel like that's not a necessary item on their shopping cart, so to speak, which is just incredibly frustrating. Yeah. And a couple of things on that. I'm glad you went back to the Brady era because they've also had an issue with this offense and specifically the receivers that go back to 2018 when they're winning the Super Bowl in 19, obviously the year after when Brady leaves. And that's beating man coverage. Like there's no receiver. You look and go straight up. Hey, he can break free aside from Edelman late in 18 and we can count and get him the ball. And when you look at Juju Smith-Schuster versus Jacoby Myers, this is actually a box 
checked in favor of Jacoby. Like you look at his grade via pro football focus, top 20 in that kind of area, averaging, you know, just over two yards per route run. Juju Smith-Schuster is not only in the bottom half of the PFF grades, which you take those or lead those, but his percentage is 31% lower yards per route run against man coverage. Like he's getting all these yards after the catch because he's facing a ton of zone as Kansas City did. Light boxes, two safeties deep, and he's a big dude who navigates space well. The Patriots, it's one safety deep. We're going to play man coverage across the top. Jacoby was getting open often enough, not creating a ton after the catch, but that's because he had someone literally on his back. So when Juju has that, he's not able to create those yards after the catch. And I think, again, there's there's a slightly higher upside. It's just I don't know if that's coming through here. The other part about this is, you know, free agency as a whole, forget the receiver conversation. You mentioned zagging with the Patriots and the roster building. They took a disciplined approach, wait out day one of free agency. We've seen this forever. So did most teams in the top 10 in terms of cap space. When you look at splash signings in the first 24 hours of free agency, six of the top 10 teams were just like, yeah, we're good. You know, like Chicago made a couple. Atlanta had one with Jesse Bates. Um, I'm missing. Houston sat this out. The Vegas made one with, um, I want to say, well, Jimmy Garoppolo counts. And then it was basically nobody else. So when you're not playing you know, you're not using a different style for agency or you're not building differently with your roster. You lose the benefits of zagging. It's great that the Patriots are going back to their business, but they're not the same old team. And I think they need to change, even if it means zigging a little bit. Yeah. And the other component to that, too, that you mentioned in terms of the zone coverage that Juju was seeing a lot of last year, it's like now with the Patriots and we saw this last year is there's a trickle down effect, right? Where now you can bring more guys in and try to get after the quarterback, Mac Jones, because you can play man on the outside because you're not scared of any of the Patriots weapons, right? So it's just one of these things where it feels like they're not realizing like how much not having a number one option, especially when you don't have like an elite quarterback right now, how much that is affecting them. Oh, one thing I did want to get to though, about this whole approach, the fact that they brought in a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster, who is a guy that does a lot after the catch, is I'm wondering this. Does this mean that Kendrick Bourne, who was really good a couple of years ago, right? I, I don't know how many times I've talked about this, but in 2021, 7.1 yak perception, seventh in the NFL, 2.7 yak over expectation, which was third. We know that he was in Bill Belichick's doghouse last year via Matt Patricia's doghouse. But you go back to Mac and look. The college numbers, it's tough to like equate them to the NFL because he's playing on the best team. But you look at it in terms of at Alabama, uh, 245 qualifiers at, at receiver. Waddle was sixth sixth in yak per reception. Devontae Smith was 19th and Mechie was 58th. Do you think this is Bill O'Brien in some sense having an input on not only the juju thing, but also, hey, maybe we get Kendrick Bourne more involved, realizing like where Mac can thrive. It's more of like a point guard type guy. Get the ball out quick. You don't want him hanging on to the thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are offenses like you look at all the Shanahan offenses that everyone just like drools over across the league, including down in Miami, Mike McDaniel. Their, their structure is just to get the, get the ball to people in space. Obviously, Tyree Kill, Jalen Waddle, you mentioned Debo Samuel out in San Francisco and let them do the rest. Like Juju is that type of player. He would fit exceptionally well in a Shanahan system. You know, Bill O'Brien learned the system down there. I think those numbers just just like Alabama recruits freaks and you get five stars, you let five stars <laughs> yeah, do five yeah. star things. They're going to put five-star numbers up there, and that's what that is. I think, though, for the Patriots, they can just do a better job of taking the low-hanging fruit on offense, which they did not do last year. We talked about their play-action rate, you know, utilizing players like Kendrick Bourne. And sometimes where you don't have to need and rely so much on scheme after you do those things. 
but you just get the ball to them and kind of create a little bit more space. And that's what Juju can do more than a Jacoby. So there's a way in which they can utilize him correctly, the way that other teams have utilized the players that we just talked about. None of them are the same caliber. And ultimately, whether it's, you know, X's and O's or different schemes or, you know, different systems and coaching styles, the players matter most. And the Patriots just not having blue chip talent at receiver and only a couple of players on defense is the real issue here. We just zero in on the receiver thing because we've been doing that the last four or five years. And for whatever reason, as the rest of the league addresses it and trades first round picks and gives $20 million contracts, Jacoby wants 10 and the Pats are like, see ya. Yeah, it's unbelievable too. And like the results aren't there now. Like it'd be one thing if this was working and you were getting to AFC championships like you did for so long, but it's not working. Like the results are there. It's not working. So that means you have to alter your thought process. All right. So maybe the good thing is 14, like you said, maybe they take the receiver because they did bring in Riley Reef, who he's 34 last year. He did not grade out well, but I would also say like it's tough to grade out well in Chicago where you have and I like Justin Fields as a quarterback, but it's difficult on the offensive line, right? Because there's so many scrambles involved. But then you still have Trent Brown. It does feel like that they want Riley Reef to be a starter. So maybe that leans more towards the fact that they are going to go maybe another weapon with that 14th overall pick. But you look at this, the line was an issue for this team, and they brought in Adrian Clem to replace Matt Patricia. And really good numbers for Oregon last year. Bo Nix was sacked five times in 13 games, the lowest of like any starter. So obviously they felt like they needed to upgrade as it pertains to the coaching staff there. But it feels like this is still sort of a group that there's a lot of questions, right? Like Riley Reef is 34 years old. Trent Brown's coming off a bad season. Like, do you still think they have to use one of their early draft picks on an offensive tackle as well? Yeah, I mean, if you needed to go furniture shopping and instead of scouring every place you could within a 30 minute drive, you went around the corner and here in New England, you know, it's Bob's discount furniture and like picked up stuff from the discount rack. Like that's, that <laughs> might not work out. You're probably going back <laughs> probably worth spending the money to get a couch where you're going to sit on for a full year and not have it wear and sit down, not to throw shade at Bob's discount furniture, but like get a good. Yeah. Come on, couch. man. You know, like treat yourself. This thing is something you're going to rely on every single day, whether you're running or passing the ball and you need to have those bookends. And we all saw what happened when everyone's standing in the living room with Matt Patricia going, where the hell's the couch? Because Yadne Kajus can't do anything. Isaiah Wynn just, just doesn't want to play right tackle and is doing a terrible job of it. Trent Brown at least was healthy, but then you're signing Connor McDermott off the street and he's like kind of holding up, sometimes giving out. So that's their issue is I think they bought more discount couches and thrown them in the living room and are hoping that one of them sticks it out for a full year. It could be Reef. It could be Calvin Anderson. It might be McDermott, who they re-signed before free agency. I just still think you need to get the newer, younger model and a first-round pick, a second-round pick, who maybe you squeeze one more year out of Riley Reef. But ultimately, that's a guy who Chicago didn't start last year. He came on after Larry Borum got hurt at right tackle, started the last 10 games. Cincinnati the year before desperately needed offensive line help. Both of them said, no, thank you, after one year. So I think he would make for an excellent swing tackle. He's played both positions. He's a pro. He's 34. All signs are great locker room guy. And they need some more of those after going through the Isaiah Wynn experience and Trent Brown now on a contract year. I just still think you need a better body there at right tackle. What they've done is address their depth. That's great. They have better answers than they did in 2022. But you still need that starting caliber tackle that you're going to rely on every single down when, you, when you, you're running your offense. 
Yeah, and even if, like, say, hypothetically, Riley Reef has a really good season, well, next year he's 35, right? So it's not like you went out there and signed the top-tier guys like McGlinchey or Orlando Brown, and you're like, okay, we have this now secured for the next four years or so. It's still, you're going to be in the same space again unless you go in the draft and find that guy that can be that pillar for the offensive line going forward. So it's like a temporary solution. It's a Band-Aid right now on a massive problem, and the Band-Aid may not even work in the case of Riley Reef. All right, so... James Robinson, they sign him to a two-year deal, $8 million. Achilles tear at the end of 2021, traded to the Jets last season, really did not play much for them. But one of the things that stuck out to me, and I know you wrote about this, you've talked about it on this pod before, is just Stevenson wore down at the end of last season. He was 10th in touches at 279. So with Robinson, I mean, 49 receptions his rookie season. I'm interested to see, like, what is the role going to be for him, right? Because They still have Montgomery under contract. They drafted Pierre Strong. Was this just a guy that they think was undervalued in the market or something along those lines? I think that's exactly it. And the other part about Juju, not to go back on that, which again, I think could very much work out well. And his higher upside is something that the Patriots need to chase. They're buying high on Juju Smith-Schuster, who just had his best season since 2018. They bought high on Nelson Aguilar once, and we all saw how that went. What they're doing with James Robinson is absolutely buying low. He was not tendered as a restricted free agent by the Jets, who traded for him in a panic move last year uh, when they lost Brees Hall. But James Robinson's only 24. Okay, he's coming off a year when he averaged 3.9 yards per carry behind the social offensive line. They pretty much, you know, pushed him out of the picture uh, down the stretch. But he's 5'9", he's 219 pounds. He's somebody who can play in all three downs. He mentioned the soft hands. I have questions about his contributions as a pass blocker. Like, I think they need that third down back. Who doesn't need to look like James White or Shane Vereen or Kevin Falk, but it's someone you can trust to do that and take the load off of Ramondre Stevenson. And I don't know if Robinson's the guy. So I would give this as kind of a B minus where the guarantees just came in this morning, excuse me, on that deal. And it's around 1.5 million. So there's no risk here, but you know, the value they could squeeze out of Robinson again as a 24 year old back who's only entering his fourth season in the league, as opposed to paying someone on a second contract is probably good business. I also, though, as someone who wanted a reliable presence at Jamal Williams, Samaji P. Ryan, who got paid comparable money, probably would have had them. But it's it's not a bad deal. It's fine. Yeah. And well, that's a good point, too, on the pass blocking, because remember last season, how many times did Bill talk about the improvement for Ramondre there where it's like, hey, they couldn't trust him in that role two years ago because he wasn't picking up blockers coming in to help protect the quarterback. And that's part of the reason he could get those snaps on third down last year. So if that's an issue, that's going to be a problem for getting on the field for the Patriots. Yeah. And it's partly why Damian Harris is going to go like not only just Robinson's arrival signal that they wanted better help there. And they've got Kevin Harris and Pierre Strong and Ty Montgomery is not going to keep anyone from getting a roster spot if they earn it. But Damian Harris is someone who didn't contribute on special teams and got to be adequate in blitz pickup by his third, maybe fourth year. So like, that's just not going to cut it. Again, you talk about a second contract for running back, generally not good business. At least James Robinson's only had three years in the league and still 24. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what he can give this team. But so if you just look at it from Mac's perspective, the Patriots obviously acknowledge that they fucked up with Patricia last year because they've hired Bill O'Brien. So I just look at this going forward and with the at least expectation right now that Juju's their number one receiver entering the season unless something pops with the 14th overall pick. So if you fast forward a year from now, are we talking about the Patriots 
giving Mac a long-term contract extension or picking up his fifth-year option? Like, what's more likely to you that we're saying, hey, should they pick up his fifth-year option or, hey, Mac's going to get a contract extension? What that? What is that going to look like? So anyone's answer here really depends on what they think is going to happen next season with Mac, right? Because obviously, right. if he produces at the same level he did last year, they're, they're not interested. Thank you. No, thank you. There are no more excuses. We have probably your most talented receiver here that you've had in Juju Smith-Schuster, a real offensive coordinator, an improved offensive line. You can't do it. You can't do it. If he lights it up, yes, they're absolutely picking up the fifth-year option. I'm of the belief that he'll be somewhere down the middle. Probably a slight improvement over the rookie numbers we saw from Mac. Again, the, the questions people had about him as a prospect have not changed. It's arm talent. It's ceiling. It's what else can he bring when he's not in kind of a perfect situation in a pocket. So I think they would pick up the fifth-year option. I think those numbers, that production, that play is good enough because you look at Tua's numbers when Miami picked that up this year, it was around $24 million. Okay, When you see the, the contracts being handed out to quarterbacks, it's a pretty good deal. Now, would you talk about an extension with Mac at that point? Probably not because you still have him for two years at a good team-friendly level. But I, I don't know. The, the relationship soured so badly there between Mac and Bill and the coaching staff, which time can heal all these wounds and just come in and Bill O'Brien's going to be in charge that you just, sometimes that's a tiebreaker for Bill. Like Belichick was ready to ship out Rob Gronkowski in a trade to Detroit, send him to NFL <laughs> Siberia because he was just had enough of it because Rob was coming in yeah. and doing motocross, you know, in Gillette stadium on, uh, you know, some Tuesday in April or whatever it was. And he calls up the line and says, do you want my hall of fame tight end? So I, I don't think there's a lot of margin for error for Mac, but what matters most is how he's going to play this upcoming season. I think he'll be good enough. It's just they've never been in this situation before. And so if he's the same player that's just good enough, what do you want to be as a Patriots? Do you want to compete and hang around? Because that's what this free agency's been. That's what Max's been. Or do you want yeah. to contend again? And if you want to contend, you might need a new quarterback. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I always looked at Mac Jones where everyone talked about like, oh, he's so pro-ready. I, I just even felt like, I don't know if the floor is super high, right? Just because of the fact that you mentioned he does not have the best arm. And I think we've seen like with a lot of the quarterbacks coming out of the collegiate level lately, if you do have that level of athleticism where you can run a little bit, it actually helps your floor rise, right? Because as you're learning to play in the NFL, as you're learning to go through all your progressions, so to speak, you can use that as a weapon. And obviously Mac Jones does not have that as a weapon right now. So we'll see. I hope he has a bounce back year because it's going to be miserable if he has another down year. And we're talking about, okay, is Zappy the guy? And then you're looking at the rest of the division and it's just going to be a really difficult season if that's the case. All right. So the secondary, they bring Jonathan Jones back. It's a two-year deal, 13 million of that guaranteed to the 19 mil. Could have him play some free safety too, but we know he's good in the slot. Outside, obviously not ideal. Jack Jones, good rookie season in terms of what he was able to do. 63.1 rating against, which was 10th, although he got in the doghouse after the injury. They bring back Jabril Peppers one year, $2 million. You have Duggar, who's going to need an extension eventually. You have Adrian Phillips, big time thumpers. Miles Bryant, who I can't watch cover anybody anymore. I mean, we've seen that. Jalen Mills, who actually tweeted out that he can play safety too, not just corner Marcus Jones small but I thought like when he got out there at least he battled we know he can what he can do in the kick return and the punt return game and maybe a better offensive player than a defensive player because he was like their best weapon at times last year and had that huge touchdown against the Bills but it does still feel like this group is a number one corner short and from a free safety perspective do you think that is Jonathan Jones or do you think they want to keep him at corner I think he'll get a shot 
right? Because his best position, nickelback, is the only position that you'd like Mark Marcus Jones, who's five foot eight and like 180 pounds long term. He's not going to play on the outside. He can moonlight at safety. Same thing with Jonathan Jones. But Jonathan Jones is now your most experienced player. Forget the secondary on Bill Belichick's defense, period. He's still got 4-3, four, 4-4 four, four speed. That's the type of player you need playing free safety like Devin McCourty did the last 11, 12 years because that's a quarterback of the defense in the last line of defense, as you always talk about. Like They play more single high in an age of too high defense than anyone else because of that player. Jonathan Jones would be that player. Uh, I like McCord. I don't think his tackling is necessarily a strong suit. And that comes really into play again, is the last line of defense and single high coverage. But for them, I think you're right. They're number one corner away. You could also say that probably about 10 to 15 teams in the league, you know, that feel good about their yeah. secondary and where the Patriots are building their strength is, you know, where the NBA pivoted to like five, six years ago, they want to play positionless in the defensive backfield. You know, Jonathan Jones could play safety. Like we talked about. Nickel, outside, Kyle Duggar, put him up high, put him in the box. Adrian Phillips, same thing. Jalen Mills, corner, safety, what's he going to do? Some of it's out of need. Mills has played corner because Stephon Gilmore held out, got injured, never came back, and that's been that. But they like to move their pieces around. At some point, though, I think you're right. You need like a number one caliber corner who can hang with the receivers that just continue to roast you. Like Stephon Diggs is not going anywhere. Tyree Kill is not going anywhere. They've had their problems with those guys, and until you find a solution – you're going to be where you were, which is kind of middle of the pack. Yeah. And Garrett Wilson, like we could talk, yes, be talking yes. about like in this division by the end of the year, we could legitimately be talking about four top 10 receivers in the NFL. If Waddle continues to progress, obviously Hill and Diggs are already there. And Garrett Wilson looks like he's on the trajectory of being a top 10 receiver in the NFL. So those are the guys you're going to have to match up with for the foreseeable future. And you do need one of those lockdown guys. I was were you surprised by the Ramsey thing? I guess like the third round draft pick based on the contract, I guess it makes more sense. But I mean, I got to say, Callan, and now maybe he wouldn't have been happy to come to the Patriots, right? Because it doesn't look like a team that's competing right now. He gets to go down there to South Beach. But man, a third round draft pick for Ramsey. I mean, I would have been awfully interested in that. So Intel came out yesterday that the new, I think it might have been Albert Breer who had this where Teams that were inquiring about Ramsey had the understanding that if you acquire him, he wants to rip up his Rams deal and get a whole new one. So naturally, uh, it's going to scare you off. One of the exceptions, though, of course, was Miami, who said, I'll just play out the remaining two years of my deal, just guarantee it. So that was done. Because, of course, where else would you want to play? But Miami nowadays with a coach like that, the weather, everything going on. Um, so, yeah, I was surprised a little bit. These things always come in. I think, you know, people still somehow undervalue the contract part of this whether it's cash flow or just cap space. But Ramsey is someone, a type of player the Patriots don't invest in at that point. Like, yeah, they had Darrell Revis, you know, coming on eight, nine years ago. But corners that are around 30 and then on the other side of 30. And Jonathan Jones fits in there, which is why I thought they wouldn't resign him at the beginning of the offseason. But he's someone they know can play multiple positions. And Jalen Ramsey comes in here as probably your highest paid player. And it's hard to do that as a team that prides itself on its own culture and sustainability and Patriot way and blah, blah, blah. Like it was a big commitment by them, but Miami was in and they probably feel like he's the last piece to put him over the top. Yeah. And it's a good point too. Like if you go back to when they signed Gilmore, he was 27, like entering his 27 year old season. So they felt like they were signing him basically for his entire prime. So it makes sense. I just looked at the, and I get it why it was like so low in terms of the price, but I mean, I just I'm kind of mad that Miami got this guy now, like Jalen Ramsey. <laughs> Jalen Ramsey's going to go on the Patriots number one receiver. Like this is this is troublesome to me. Well, and Xavier Howard. That's the other thing. Like yeah. we have this receiver conversation. You need to be your teams in the division because the Jets are no longer 
you know, automatic two wins. And last year you only beat them because Zach Wilson was throwing multiple passes to Devin McCourty again. And Marcus Jones took back a punt, the first punt return touchdown in the entire league at that point to the house in the last minute. Like without that, your advantages, however small a quarterback and coach are now pretty much gone because Aaron Rodgers is there. Like you, you need to start in the division and build out. And they're like, eh, we're, we're okay. They're like, they're, they're still operating like they're the Patriots full is, is the biggest point. Yeah. And Zach Wilson, that is one of the worst games I've ever seen a quarterback play. The McCourty one that you referenced, that was my favorite. He's just like almost like running out of bounds and he just tosses it up. Yeah. That was absolutely ugly. But it does look like the Jets are going to get a new quarterback. It's not officially official, although Aaron Rodgers went on the Pat McAfee show and basically threw everybody under the bus but himself and said he's going to be going to the Jets at some point. So I want to get your take on this. So if you look at Favre, if he goes to New York in 08, 217 yards per game, 15th. He did have the most interceptions in the league at 22. Not a surprise with Favre. He was 21st in passer rating. The Jets go 9-7. and seven. They don't make the playoffs. The Patriots that year went 11-5. and five. They needed the Jets to beat the Dolphins in the final week of the season to get into the postseason when they had Castle at quarterback. So the Patriots didn't get in the playoffs that year either. But then you look at the other like star quarterback that left late in his 30s, Brady. Brady goes to Tampa in 2020. He's third in passing yards. He's ninth in passer rating. 40 touchdowns and 12 picks. Of course, we all know the history. The Bucs would go on to win the Super Bowl. They went 11-5. and five. So is Rodgers closer? Because I believe he's going to be somewhere in the middle here. Is Rodgers closer to Favre or closer to Brady with the Jets? Brady, no question. And it's partly due to the weapons. Like we just talked about Garrett Wilson, which it's also a strange conversation. And someone tweeted this um, as I was about to tweet it. Like Rodgers is the guy who's been clamoring for receivers in Green Bay. And then he goes to New York or has this deal and is like, oh, by the way, I want all of my old receivers that I was quietly bitching about the whole time. <laughs> um, he's he's going to have better weapons. He's going to have a top five defense behind him. He is one of the most risk averse quarterbacks in the league and successfully so not to his detriment, except for maybe in the fourth quarter of the playoff games. But Favre's issue that year, like you mentioned, 22 picks is like that's untenable for any quarterback in any era, except for maybe Brett Favre. But especially in modern football, when you have players like Rodgers, whose interception percentages are like 1.2. So you're talking about one out of every 90 or so throws. And so I think when you look at Brady in that year with the Bucs, had the defense and the weapons in that, you know, ability just to avoid turnovers. Like I think Rodgers will get a one-year renaissance. Um, the off-field stuff, though, will probably get in his way more than anything else. And then 2024 is probably, probably the drop-off. All right. So before we let you go, I was looking at the FanDuel odds. And by the way, the Patriots odds jumped after they signed Juju yesterday. So here are the odds to win the AFC East. The Bills, plus 125. Jets, plus 230. Dolphins, plus 370. The Patriots are plus 700 to win the division. And look, all these teams are super talented, right? And so to me, it feels like that's fair. Like based on where we're looking at these teams right now, the Patriots are the fourth most talented team, or I should say they're the least talented team, I guess would be the better way to phrase yeah. this. No. <laughs> so broad question, and, and you kind of hinted at this earlier. What's the plan? Like, be competitive, try to get back to contention. Like, it's because obviously they're not in a complete rebuild right now, right? They're bringing in veteran players. So I'm just trying to figure out, Callahan, what is their plan? Like, I can look at some of these teams, like in the NBA right now, and say, hey, I know what the Pistons are trying to do. They're trying to lose, they're trying to tank, they want to get Wembenyana, right? There's a clear plan. They have their other guy in Cade Cunningham, and I'm not saying the Pistons are a well run organization. But you get the point. I at least know what they're trying to do. Like, I just it feels like to me, the Patriots right now are almost on this like treadmill of mediocrity where they're just trying to like 
get into the playoffs at the tail end? I think they believe they're better than they are. And that kind of hubris, that arrogance is the source of a lot of their problems. And it was last year with Matt Patricia and Joe Judge going in as de facto co-offensive coordinators, quarterbacks coach, blew up in their face. You could go all the way back to Spygate, which to some degree isn't fair, but that's exactly what it was. Uh, treating Brady the way that they did and getting away with it. Granted, they were super successful, but that's all that this is. Like they go up to draft prospects and just tell them, and maybe they're right, but voice this certainty of we work harder than anyone else in the league. Like this league made of men whose solution to everything is just do the same thing harder and better and smarter and blah, blah, blah. Like they'll just outwork everyone. I just don't think the Patriots advantages that they enjoyed for 20 years, which of course start with Brady, are there as much. Like the proliferation of all these analytics and data and GPS tracking and, you know, everything has gone out to the rest of the league, things that they were inherently good at because they had some of that information, but also just the smartest coach in the league and Bill Belichick. The results just aren't there, but they believe that if they get enough, they can compete. And if you're in the playoffs, anything can happen. So there's a financial component to this because, again, like I mentioned, they're bottom five and just cash spent, which to me is, is mind blowing given the way that they've been bottom five, bottom 10 the last few years. But yeah. that's a decision that they've just made. It's just not all about cap space. So there's more to that. But ultimately, they think they're better than they are. It could probably say, hey, we would have been 10 and 7 last year if Hunter Henry had scored in Minnesota and we just didn't give up a second kick return touchdown in Buffalo. I don't buy it. I think also they go, Bill O'Brien's going to help us on offense. How much? Like if Juju Smith Schuster is your number one, we know how that story goes. What about <laughs> Mac? How many games is Trent Brown going to play? I don't know. No one has every answer. But to them, they seem to be answering a lot more questions. Yes. And definitively so than the rest of us. And, you know, uh, until rubber meets the road, that's probably just how it's going to be. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting to me is no matter how many times Bill praises Tom Brady and he goes on his podcast, et cetera, it's almost like they undervalue how many games Brady came back and won for them when their defense was playing poorly. It was, yeah, the Patriots were smarter than most other teams in the NFL. Nobody would dismiss that. And Belichick's the greatest coach of all time. But it's almost like they forget how many times Brady bailed this organization out and they don't have that guy anymore. So that's the difference making point. Oh, Callahan, I, I know I said before I let you go, but I did want to ask you this because you've been obviously you've covered Bill for years now, but you've been covering some Celtics games. So mm. do you see any similarities with Joe Missoula's press conferences? I mean, this guy's out of his mind, isn't he? He uh, it makes me laugh. I don't know if it would make me laugh, you know, after five or six years of it, because there's also like. Bill does that because it's part of his personality, but there's a performative aspect to it. Like he ramps up that part of himself just to shut us down for competitive reasons. If you don't help with football and could actively hurt them by talking about game plans or leaking injury information, like he has no time for us, but he's won eight Super Bowls. You kind of get away with that. Joe Missoula, like, I don't know, passes, like you could start drinking beer a couple administrations ago. Like that, that's, it's, it's a little different with a guy who's an interim coach has not had the success People get on him with the timeouts or whatever or the roster, you know, that he's given probably the best in the NBA. It's amusing to me. I think there's still like a little shock setting in just from the couple glimpses I've had. They're all very good writers about dealing with that kind of stuff. But like as someone who's dealt with Bill and combated sometimes in press conferences when he's like that, like I just kind of sit back and be like, oh, yeah, this is this is familiar. <laughs> hey, don't ask him about taking more twos, okay? Don't do that because he'll get very mad about that. It's just a math problem. That's what he says. It's all math. So don't ask him about twos. Well, the part about that when he – so I was covering the Portland game, the one bright spot feels like the last two weeks, maybe three. And, you know, he had asked in the pregame press conferences, like, you know, something about shots of the rim. And he was like, 
hey, so when we you know take a bunch of layups and miss them, it was actually after the game, they missed a bunch of layups. Why don't we ask about that as opposed to when we miss a bunch of threes? I don't get it. You know, Just because you're closer to the rim doesn't mean that it's any easier. And so there was silence because I think you're dealing with someone who's like clearly comfortable being uncomfortable and confrontational. And I'd be like, I don't know if I totally buy that. When I'm 30 feet away from something, it's a lot harder to get closer to it as opposed to two feet. And I get you're getting contested by these seven foot alien athletes that are, you know, the best 1% of the 1% in the entire world. But like generally missing layups is sometimes you just blew it or, you know, I, I don't know the shot selection, but that, those are opportunities that I feel and certainly didn't feel like this when I was first in the Patriots beat that you can deal with Bill, but he won't ask those kind of questions. And I think Joe was sincere about that. And that's where I would jump in and be like, you know, if I had more of a basketball education and background, I'd go back and forth, but he at least feels like he engages a little bit more. Oh, I loved when he did that too. Like, because I looked back, so I'm like, okay, this is it. Like, why is he so mad about this? So yeah. out of those, they, they were 19 to 25 in the restricted area that game and Brogdon missed five of them. So it was basically one guy missed layups. That's <laughs> it. Like the, the rest of the team missed one layup the entire game. So that's it. And like, so I just found that incredibly funny that he's like, this is the wrong game to point that out. Like actually everybody else on the team missed one shot. So it made no sense to me. Yeah. The one thing I, I'd say they have in common too, because the Patriots and there's, spend so much time tracking, sifting through, sorting out media related stuff, what we say, what we do, um, is that Bill doesn't have rabbit ears, but he knows what's going on with the help of other people. I think Joe Missoula has some sort of rabbit ears. And when he can kind of get off a little bit of pushback, he'll take the opportunity, which is also something Belichick does, you know, when bring up some, I don't know, like Ty Montgomery was hurt and he claimed that we had all written, he was out for the season. He comes back the next week. He was like, yeah, so how about that? We're like, I, I don't know, but they, they, that's another area where, you know, again, it, it uh, feels like Foxborough. Yeah, it's a little bit of Bill, too, and Joe talking about like Grant. Well, Bill would say, hey, this is what's best for the team. He said, oh, it's just like a matchup thing. <laughs> like Joe was right, right. yeah, yeah. it's to say it, we do what's best for the team. All right. That is Andrew Callahan covers the Patriots for the Herald, of course, covering some Celtics right now for the Herald as well. And he's the host of the Pats Interference Pod as well. Callahan, thanks so much for the time and good luck to UConn in the tournament. You got it. Appreciate it, bro. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions all apply. See website for details. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy Andrew Callahan as Patriots free agency is well underway. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like they're going to get a number one receiver, which really irks me. But it is time to bring in Jamie McClellan, of course, the producer of Off the Pike. And we're going to get to our email box and you can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Jamie, what's going on, man? I'm good, Brian. I mean, a little uh, downcast after... Your talk with Andrew, just like you said, the <laughs> treadmill of mediocrity that strikes a chord. Yeah, I mean, and you look at this division, Jamie. Now it's 
Aaron Rodgers at some point, and maybe by the time this podcast comes out, he'll officially be with the Jets. But Aaron Rodgers, Tua played really well last season. That team brought in Jalen Ramsey. They're loaded with, at the receiver position. You have Stephon Diggs in Buffalo still with Josh Allen, even there, though their season didn't end well. But, I mean, the Patriots just far behind these teams as it pertains to their talent level. So, by the way, I think we're going to kick it off with the Patriots email. Yeah, it's kind of similar to that thinking, actually. Uh, this is from Andrew in North Carolina. Andrew writes, it's Wednesday afternoon, it's yesterday, and the Jets have yet to officially sign Rodgers, but assuming they do, they'll likely put the Pats in the cellar of the AFC East. If the playoffs are realistically out of reach this year, what should they aim to do for the season ahead other than to see whether Mac is the real deal? Is it worth signing big name free agents? Would they be better off loading up on draft picks and looking two to three years down the road? Thanks. Well, I thought Callahan made a really good point, right? It's hubris. The Patriots actually think they're better than they are. Like when we look at it, we don't see this as a really good football team. The Patriots actually believe that they're going to be pretty good this season. And to me, like what is their ultimate ceiling this year is making the playoffs, maybe squeezing in as a wild card team. But now you look at your division, you have six games against the Jets who are loaded with the quarterback now, the Bills who are loaded and the Miami Dolphins. Like that's a very, very difficult schedule for the Patriots to even make it into the postseason. It's going to be very difficult for them to finish 500 in the division. Ordinarily, when you don't finish 500 in the division, you don't make the postseason. So my whole thing, I guess this whole season, from my perspective, based on the limited talent this team has from a roster perspective is to the point finding out what you have in Mac Jones and whether or not you're going to move on from Mac Jones after the season. And if you're going to be in the market for another quarterback again, but the only thing I'll say to that and in defense of Mac, and I've been harsh on Mac at times, as you all know, Jamie, the one thing I'll say is, does he have enough around him? Like Tua has Tyree Kill and Waddle. Allen has Stephon Diggs. Aaron Rodgers is going to go and he's going to play with Garrett Wilson, who's better than any of the receivers on the Patriots. And all those guys that we mentioned, are already better than Mac. And Mac has less to work with than all of them. It's like the opposite that we see with teams that have limited quarterbacks, if you will. I alluded to it the, it the other day. Jimmy Garoppolo played with Kittle. He played with Samuel. He played with Ayuk. They got him McCaffrey. Okay, this year, he's going to play with Devontae Adams. Okay, and they just brought in Jacoby Myers to be like the secondary weapon. All the Patriots have is a number two receiver for Mac Jones. And let's hope Kendrick Bourne can get back on track. And now that Patricia... It's not going to be calling plays. Maybe he's out of the doghouse. But I just feel like even if you want to find out the best, even your line's not elite, right? We talked about it with Callahan. It's a journeyman and Riley Reef. It's Trent, Trent Brown, who was upset at times this year. I just feel like the quarterback doesn't have a lot around him, and he's not the type of guy that's going to carry the organization on his back. So I just feel like Mack, again, is going to find himself, despite the upgraded offensive coordinator, Mack is going to find himself at a disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, that's true, but... I mean, even if they go out and get a guy, they get a Jared Judy or whatever, and then he becomes up to to his level, I would say that's his ceiling. I don't think that makes them a Super Bowl contender. So it's it's kind of like what the what's the point? You can pad max stats, but what are you gonna do? Get divisional yeah. rounds? Yeah, that's that's fair. Not this year. You couldn't win even if you get a number one receiver this year, but at least it, it has something to build on. Like going into next year, if two is healthy, I give Miami a chance. I'm not saying they're one of the favorites, but they have a chance, right? Because they keep adding more talent. Like they bring in Jalen Ramsey to be part of that defensive backfield. So I think at least if you had a year like Tua was at one point leading the league in passer rating, I think he finished the season. Yeah, he finished the season third overall. So if 
Mac had a similar season like that if they acquired a number one receiver, well, then I feel like you feel like, okay, entering the next year, all right, we're cooking with gasoline here. Now we can add some more players. Like, we legitimately have a chance. Now, I feel like Miami, that organization right now feels like they have a legitimate chance, right? They're believing in what they did last year when Tua was healthy. That's why they continue to add to their team. With the Patriots, I just feel like right yeah. now, they're in the stage of they don't know about their quarterback. And if Mac did have a number one receiver, maybe you'd find out, oh, maybe he can get to that level with Tua. And you could say, hey, we feel good going into the 2024 season that we can yeah. have a chance to compete when we add such and such to the defense or add such and such to the offense. But right now, I feel like they're a year away from being like two years away. That's what I feel. What do you give up for a guy like Hopkins or Judy? Second round pick? Third? Well, I think Hopkins is going to be cheaper in terms of what you'd have to give up just because of the age. And Denver is asking for a first round pick for Judy. So I guess the question the Patriots would have to ask themselves is, do they feel like they can get a receiver at 14? If they can get a receiver at 14 right. that they think could be a number one, then go ahead and do that because that's the cheap labor in the NFL, these receivers on rookie contracts. I'll just, i I'll just say this, Jamie. I doubt they go that direction. I want them to take a receiver if they're not going to trade for one, but do you have any faith that they'll actually take one? I mean, this has like offensive tackle written all over it. They, they very rarely do what I want. All right, who's up next? Okay, we're going to switch gears to panic in Celtics Nation, as I'm sure you can relate to. Um, This is from Cody in Colorado. Cody writes, I don't want to lose faith in the Celtics team because the title hopes were so incredibly high this season. I love everybody on this team, but we've seen this movie so many times all year where the Celtics are just a complete no-show against teams they should be able to beat fairly easily. They've already fallen behind Milwaukee in the standings, and they're getting dangerously close to falling behind Philly as well. I guess the hope at this point is that maybe they will magically figure it out when the playoffs start. But further along we go, it just seems less and less likely that that's going to happen. The loss to Houston was demoralizing, just like so many other losses the Celtics have had this year. The vibes around this team are all around bad right now. They don't seem locked in. They're not playing with any competitive fire. They're consistently taking bad shots, and they're not locked in on defense. They rely too much on the three-point shooting, which is fine on some nights, but when the three ball isn't falling, you've got to try to make something else work, and they always seem reluctant to do so. This is not the time of year you want to be playing bad basketball, and blowing games to teams like the Rockets is not great. I don't want to give up on the team, but it's hard to imagine that when the playoffs start, they're going to just suddenly pull it all together. I would love to be wrong, but I can only watch the same thing happen so many times and still feel good about this team. If you have any kind of reasoning why we should keep faith in the 2023 Celtics, I would love to hear it. I've held off as long as I could, but I'm starting to mentally prepare for another summer of disappointment because, unfortunately, that's where it all feels we're headed with this team. And losing with all this incredible talent and depth we have in this team is going to be a tough pill to swallow. Brian, pull Cody back from the ledge. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, I would say this is I told you earlier that I was concerned about Tatum, but let's give him some time to get back on track because he's definitely not the player that we've seen for the past couple of games, right? He's going to get back to being an elite player in the league. I do have those questions long-term about him getting to certain spots on the floor where other guys have their spots where they know they can go for a basket. Tatum doesn't have that at this point in his career. That's something long-term to worry about, but I still think Tatum is going to finish first-team All-NBA, and he's going to get back on track, probably against the Blazers, who have the worst defense, one of the worst defenses in the NBA. Actually, the worst defense in the NBA, non-Wembignana territory, right? Teams that aren't tanking. Like, they're that bad defensively. I believe he's going to get back on track in the next couple of games here. So I'm not as concerned about that. 
The questions with Missoula, the rotations, that stuff's all real. We'll find out more in the playoffs. If Derek White is sitting out playoff games, I'm going to go absolutely nuts in terms of sitting out in the fourth quarter, I should say, late in games. Like, that's going to be an issue. But major development has been Jalen. Jalen right now, I would argue, is playing the best basketball of his career post-All-Star break. He's been tremendous, as we outlined earlier. The one other thing I'll say is this, because this does not look like a championship team the way they're currently playing. Let's see what Rob looks like, right? Because when they have Rob, they're outscoring teams by almost 10 points per 100 possessions with him on the court. He brings something that nobody else on this team brings. A couple of things, elite shot blocker, offensive rebounder, and a lob threat. They don't have any of those three pieces when he's not on the court. So let's see what happens when Rob Williams is back and playing big time minutes for this team because this guy, and I know we're all concerned about the injuries, but I get to see Rob when he gets back because Rob is a complete game changer for this team. So no, I'm not pressing the panic button. It's been a very aggravating stretch for the Celtics right now, but I'm not in the mode where I'm completely panicking about where this team's at. Concerned? Certainly. But let's wait and see what Rob Williams looks like with this team when he gets back. And let's see what the rotations look like late during the season when we get to the final 10 games or so. And we're getting close to that territory right now. Did, did that do it for you, Jamie? You're still panicking. No, I, I think that's fair to wait until Rob Williams comes back. I don't see any point getting upset before they, you know, they're starting fives altogether. But um, this next question doesn't so much talk about personnel, but talks about the coaching. This is from Barry M. Barry writes, regarding the Celtics, there's been a lot of discussion about the volume of threes, the rotations, and the defensive drop-off. All real concerns. But I think the number one issue underlying their recent struggles has to do with this team taking on the coach's personality. Last year, the team we saw in the first half of the season played like they were still Brad's team. Then Ime's tough love got through to them, and they hardened up and played great. Similarly, they've played the first half of this year like they were still Ime's team. But over time, the team has taken on Joe's personality, and his approach is very much like Brad's, and the results reflect that. Brad and Joe are both good coaches, but their approach just doesn't get the best out of this group. Your thoughts? A couple things to that, because I do think there's some truth in there. So the one thing I will say, and this is a very small sample size, this is one game. The defensive intensity was actually there last night. It was there in that game against Minnesota. They picked up the defensive intensity, which we didn't see against the Rockets. It should have been there against the Rockets, but they didn't bring it. They did bring it right out of the opening gate against Minnesota, where Minnesota, and not that the Celtics played well offensively, but Minnesota had an offensive rating south of 90. Like the worst team in the league is is Charlotte around 108. This team was below 90 in the first quarter in terms of their offensive rating, in terms of the first half, I should say. So they brought the necessary effort. But to to the point about the personality of the coach, do you think some of the shit that they've been doing defensively would be acceptable if Ime was the coach? Like, do you think the stuff that's been going on defensively where we saw so many blow-bys since the All-Star break, so many straight-line drives to the basket... Would that be tolerated with Ime? No, Ime didn't tolerate that stuff on defense whatsoever. So I do think that has been part of the calculus here where Ime is a very big, brash, and even physical uh, from a physical perspective, the guy's massive, right? Like he's an intimidating figure. And with this team last year, like they hadn't done anything, right? Like, yeah, they made it to Eastern Conference Finals and all that. But Ime came in and said, well, we have to change things around. Like they had the respective email of like, okay, well, this guy's brought in because the previous coach, Brad, had been really good, but it wasn't working out. Even Brad himself acknowledged they needed a change. So Ime was the guy and everybody was on board with bringing in Ime. So Ime had the respect of everybody and he proved to them in some way like, hey, this defense works. Rob's going to now, when he made the switch, Rob off the ball, Al there, and everybody bought in. They were switching like crazy. The defensive intensity really never stopped for the majority of the season, right? They played that way all year long. 
I just want to see them get back to they're never going to be as good as they were last year defensively. It's going to be very difficult for any team to get to that type of level defensively. I mean, they're one of the best teams I can remember in recent history. Like I'd have to go back to the 19 Raptors like it in this era. Like we're not talking about some of the Pistons teams in the late 80s or 90s. Right. We're talking about this era. The best two teams I can remember are the Raptors with Kawhi, where they had all those guys, the Marcus Sauls of the world, who was a defensive player of the year. Lowry's really good defensively. Siakam can switch everything, right? Like, that's how good the Celtics were. So they can't get back to that. But the effort thing is the stuff that concerns me. And that, to the point, would be on the coach to get that necessary effort out of them defensively. And we saw in the game against Minnesota, he clearly got through to them. And he was playing big guys more like playing Grant Moore minutes. So I do think there has been at least, and we'll see how long this carries over, right? Because you play Portland, a bad team. You play Utah, a team that is now actually sort of like embracing the tank a little bit. But what we saw with Houston, Houston at least tried to win, right? They tried to beat you. So the Celtics have to come with that defensive effort going forward. And I hope the game against Minnesota is a sign that they woke up and they realize, hey, we have got to get back to playing well defensively because the reality is this. They're not the team that was 20 and five shooting the shit out of the ball and on pace to be the best offense of all time. They need to play on the defensive side of the ball as well. So we'll see if that carries over to the next couple of games, that effort we saw against Minnesota. Yes, we will. You know, I hate to act like he's some unicorn, but I don't even think it's a reflection of Joe or Brad. I just think Ime was a special coach. So uh, I think we miss him a bit. This is just one last note, Brian. This is from uh, Brad on the North Shore. Brad writes, just listen to the pod with Rob Bradford, who suggested that off the plague podcast name wouldn't last long. He's crazy. It's the perfect name for a podcast focused on Boston sports. Never change it. So thank you, Brad, on the North Shore. Yeah, you hear that, Brad Foe? Suck it, all right? <laughs> yeah, Brad Foe. Come on, man. Get with it. Off the Pike. Let's go. All right, that is Jamie McClellan, the producer of Off the Pike. Make sure to email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Jamie, man. Great stuff. See you, Brian. All right, I did want to get to a little Red Sox here because they have announced that Corey Kluber is their opening day starter. Corey Kluber. Like, it's 2015. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole sale thing again about why he's not starting opening day. We already did that. And look, Whitlock, I'll get into him in a second, but think about it. Whitlock's not an option. Bayo's not an option. Paxton's not an option either because all these guys are dealing with injuries. But if you had to rank the guys that could have been the opening day starter, say everybody's healthy, the only guy that I would say is less intriguing than Corey Kluber is Nick Pavetta because we know what Pavetta is. He's a bottom of the rotation guy with a nice curveball. Like Pavetta's not an interesting pitcher at this particular point in time. At least Kluber's new, so I'd give Kluber the slight bump over Pavetta just because he hasn't pitched in a Red Sox uniform before. But Sale obviously would be the most interesting. Bayo would be more interesting. Whitlock would be more interesting. I would argue that Cutter Crawford would be more interesting just because he's a young pitcher, right? Tanner Houck, he would be more interesting just because he throws those frisbee sliders. And Paxton, just because he has the potential of being a strikeout guy which Kluber doesn't at this particular point in time. So the only guy that I think that would be less interesting than Kluber starting opening day is Nick Pavetta. So a snooze fest in terms of who the actual guy is, who the name is, who the starter is as it pertains to Kluber. But here's the good thing about Kluber starting opening day. We see all these changes in Major League Baseball. We are going to get a lot of action. Kluber last season, 3.0% walk rate. That was the best in Major League Baseball among starters. So he's not going to walk anybody. And secondarily, just a 20.2% strikeout rate, 33rd of 45 qualified starters. So we're going to get a ton of what we want to see, right? Action. 
Like with Corey Kluber, screw the three true outcomes, strikeout, walks, and home runs. No, we're going to get none of that. We're actually going to get everything in play, which makes a more interesting product, at least in my mind. Here's the good thing about Kluber from a Red Sox angle. 31 starts in 2021. 25 of those went five innings or more. So 80% of the time, he's giving you at least five innings. And I know if we went back to like the early 2000s, the 90s, people are like, Brian, what are you talking about? But this is the modern pitcher. Unless you're a real true ace, give me five innings, then let's get it to the bullpen. So you'll take this version of Kluber, right? An innings eater at the bottom of the rotation because you have more guys that have upside where you're talking about Sale and Bayon, Whitlock, Whitlock. All those guys have upside. Unfortunately, at this particular point in time, Corey Kluber doesn't, but he can't eat up innings. He threw over 160 innings last year for Tampa Bay. But I do feel like this could be a big opening day for Heim Bloom, and here's why. Not saying that this like absolves him of all the mistakes he's made previously. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying opening day in and of itself could be big for Heim Bloom because Kluber could give you his five innings, and then you could have Schreiber, Chris Martin, Hanley Jansen, and Rodriguez who has pitched really well for them in spring training. Like those guys close it out. So Schreiber is what Heimblum loves. Diamond in the rough guy that he found. And Schreiber's been great for this team. And he upgraded the bullpen with the Martins of the world and the Jansons of the world. And then Rodriguez, another guy that you took a flyer on that has nasty stuff. Like all these guys. And that's the type of player you take a flyer on when you have established guys like the Martin and the Jansen who you got after Rodriguez. I understand that. But you knew you were going to upgrade the bullpen. So this could be, oh, Bloom upgraded the bullpen. Look at all these moves. Look at all this stuff that Bloom did to the bullpen. Corey Kluber gives you the way. And then after the game, you're like, oh, and now you got Chris Sale going on Saturday. So I do feel like that opening day against Baltimore could be a really good day for Bloom in and of itself. All right, I did want to get to Whitlock, though, because he's coming back from the hip surgery. And he was nasty in his spring training outing on Wednesday. Two innings, no hits, three strikeouts. He was nasty against the Rays. He looked good. He looked healthy. And remember last year, he was pitching hurt. Like we always talk about the different type of stuff with Whitlock, but he was pitching hurt. All right. So here's a little metric man breakdown of Whitlock, the starter. So last year, in terms of the numbers, the first time through the order, 237. Second time through the order, opponents hit 299. Slugging percentage, first time through the order, 303. Second time, 567. First time through the order, opponents had an OPS of 587. The second time through the order, that was at 901. So if you look at it, 62 percentage points in terms of the decrease in the average, 264, I should say the increase, 264 percentage points in slugging, 314 percentage points increase in OPS, right? That's really, really bad. And the problem was he was just too predictable. I'm not concerned about that. He's going to be better for having that little experience that he did last year. I'm not going to overreact to that. It's a guy that's trying to be a big league pitcher as a starter for the first time in his career. I'm not worried about that whatsoever. Here is my question is the slider with Whitlock, because last year his numbers were actually better against lefties than they were righties because the slider did not hold up for him. So last year, and this is one of the big questions I have with Whitlock, is opponents hit, and righties in particular, I should say, hit 326 against his slider, and they had a 628 slugging percentage. Now, I will say he had some trouble at times with the control of the slider, but it was a nasty pitch. Like, he had a 49.4% whiff rate with, with that pitch. So that means righties, against righties in particular, they were whiffing at almost half of the Whitlock sliders they actually offered at. Now, here's the thing about those numbers I gave you. The 326 average, the expected average based on the launch angle and the quality of the contact was just 228. So those numbers are significantly down from the 326 average. So he did get some bad luck with this pitch, but this is the big thing to me. 
if he has that pitch, if he has that slider, and that slider is a plus pitch for him, then I believe Whitlock has real potential of being a front end of the rotation guy because we know his two-seamer is really good and we know his change-up's really good. The big question to me is going to be the slider going forward and whether or not the expected numbers were right or the actual numbers were right from last season as it pertains to the batting average against with that particular pitch. All right, before we go, I want to get to the greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. By the way, how about this? We hit on our Seas Wolves same game parlay that you saw on the Ringer Twitter account. So it was plus 494. You needed Derek White to hit two threes. He hit three. You needed Smart over four and a half assists. He had five. And Jalen, 25 or more points. He had 35. So we hit on that one. So that was nice. We also hit on an anytime goal score. By the way, make sure you're getting on FanDuel and get on the FanDuel Sportsbook because I've been loving this. The same, the anytime goal scores. I had Lindholm and I had McAvoy. Unfortunately, the Bruins lost that game Tuesday, but I had Lindholm at plus 800, McAvoy at plus 1,000, Lindholm scored. So this is a nice way. Put some money. I'll give you this advice. Put some money on the Bruins defenseman to score the McAvoys, the Lindholms, the Orloffs of the world because they're scoring a lot in these games. So that's a little thing that I would advocate for. All right, so for this week, I got a couple of tournament bets. And the thing I really like about what FanDuel has to offer, you can bet the region, which is awesome, right? So I took one of the favorites. I took Houston plus 135 to win the Midwest. That's a loaded team. I thought they got a really good draw too. So I like that plus 135 to win the Midwest. And then how about this one? Duke is rolling right now. They are plus 650 to win the East. Duke's playing outstanding basketball. They got screwed over in terms of the seeding. They should have had a better seed than they got. Purdue's the number one in that region. And I know they have Zach Eady, the big guy there, who's like seven foot nine or whatever it is. I mean, the guy's massive, seven foot two, actually. But nonetheless, you get my point. Is I believe Duke is the team that you risk that or take the chance on the plus 650 and Houston, the team that I think will win at plus 135. So I'm covering myself with Houston because I believe they're going to win no matter what. And I really think Duke has a good chance to win the the East region. So I put plus 650, the odds on Duke. So those are my two bets in terms of the tournament. Houston plus 135 to win the Midwest. Duke plus 650 to win the East. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com as well. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.